Turn in your Bible to Psalm 44. Psalm 44. If you don't have a Bible, we want to put one in your hands and we want to give that as a gift to you. If you don't own a Bible, um, you can uh, take that and, uh, and use it and read it. But you can, on, uh, you can find Psalm 44 on page 440, 440 in those texts. And as you're turning there, let me ask a question. How do you explain unexplainable suffering? Now, I might ask that question, and you immediately say, well, it's an unanswerable question, Zach. It's unexplainable suffering. And yet, all of us, many of us, have had suffering of which there is no explanation. There is no real reason why. And it causes us to ask a lot, a lot of questions. And it's an important question. How do you explain unexplainable suffering? I've been around a lot of people who suffer, suffered a little myself. I've heard of people processing job loss, relational disappointment, cancer diagnosis, general life frustration, lack of fulfillment, depression. And in, in, in all of those circumstances, any host of challenges that people face, in all of those circumstances, one of the universal questions that people will ask is, what did I do to deserve this? You ever ask that question? Middle of... Your sorrow, your suffering, where there's no explanation, what did I do to deserve this? I can think of some relational challenges that I was having in college. And I asked the Lord, is there, is there some kind of sin that I committed that has resulted in this? I can remember where I was in our first apartment where I received the call about Sarah's dad's diagnosis with cancer. Everyone in our family immediately asked, Lord, is there something that we've done to deserve this? Maybe you've asked that question as your child has walked away from the faith. Did I not raise them right? Maybe it was in your marriage. Did I, did I do something? Is this God's judgment on me for a sin? See, we're familiar with those kinds of, those, that kind of suffering when it's related to something. We, we see this in the Bible. We see uh, Adam's sin that leads to all the other sins. When Adam sins, the rest of us sin, and therefore all the sins flow from that. There's a, there's a cause. We see David's sin with Bathsheba, the devastation that that had on his kingdom. We'll see Jonah in the belly of the fish. If Jonah in the belly of the fish were to ask, what did I do to, to cause this? There was a clear answer. See, asking the question, is there anything that I've done to deserve this, is not a wrong question. It's just not the only question. Because then we come to Job. Job. Job could ask, what did I do to deserve, to deserve this? And there's no clear answer. In fact, Job chapter 1 begins with God speaking to Satan, saying, Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on all the earth. A blameless, an upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And we would expect, for most of us in our minds, the way we understand God, we would expect for the next 40 chapters of the book of Job, to be full of God's richest blessing on his life. 
And yet, instead, we read of some 40-some chapters of suffering on Job. Why? How do you explain unexplainable suffering? What do we do in that distress? What do we do when our suffering seems meaningless and there is no reason? Well, Psalm 44 could almost be a psalm of Job. We see the people crying out to God in the midst of their distress. Emily Oren is going to come and read Psalm 44 for us this morning. Emily and her husband Justin have been part of our church for over a decade. Emily serves in various capacities with our women's ministry, and I'm thankful to have her with us this morning. If you would, in honor of the reading of God's word, please stand as Emily reads. Psalm 44, to the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us, what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordained salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes, and you have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter, and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. This is God's word. You may be seated. So if you're reading in the English Standard Version, which Emily just read from, you'll notice that this passage has a heading that says, Come to our help. The Christian Standard Bible, another faithful translation, has a header that says, Israel's complaint. Now when we hear that word complaint, we might immediately think of a negative thing, and it often is. Complaining or grumbling or whining, it can oftentimes be nonsense. And Philippians 2.14 tells us to do everything without complaining. Yet we should be cautious to not apply that in such a way that leads us to distance ourselves 
from true and honest grief. Sometimes Christians who have a high view of Scripture, who have a high knowledge of God, who know a text like do not do everything without complaining, can sometimes think, well, when I'm suffering, when I'm, in, when I'm grieving, when I'm in lament, that just means I have to get over it. I, I, I can't really feel sorrow for where I'm at in life. I can't really, really feel the difficulties of my situation. And let me just say plainly, that's not helpful. See, Psalm 44 communicates a model of how we are able to take our frustrations, our struggles, even our complaints to God. See, with children, there are different kinds of cries. Typically, mothers are more discerning on this, but moms especially know when their baby is crying, before they can use their words, there are simply just different kinds of cries. There's sometimes cries of, of anger or of whininess, but then there's times just a cry of pain, of distress. And a good parent knows the difference between those cries. See, this is a cry of pain, of, uh, of distress. Suffering. Remember, this psalm would have been sung as a, a hymn for the people. This is not just a private prayer, but a congregational song that all the people would have sung together. You'll, you'll notice the plural language, the we that is here. So in the mix of our unexplainable sufferings, what do we do? We simply cry. We cry out. The psalm leads us here, and we'll see this. First, we cry, out to, we cry out in view of God's sovereignty in salvation. We cry out in view of God's sovereignty in salvation. The psalm begins with, with the psalmist rehearsing how God had saved his people in the past. The people were singing of the events that they did not experience, but, but corporately they identified with God's salvation of his people in the past. Verse 1 says, Oh God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in the days of old. We, we see that the, these people were taught their history. We learned two important lessons from this. First, we need to teach our children and our children's children the word of God. Because the salvation story of Israel is the salvation story of the church. So these are our spiritual ancestors, which is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians that these things, the Old Testament was written for our instruction as an example for us. So we teach people the word. We see how God has acted to save and redeem and protect his people. Secondly, we teach our children and grandchildren our own testimonies, our own testimonies. See, we might wrongly give the impression sometimes that we have always been as mature as what we are now. And our children or grandchildren maybe can look up to us and be able to say, well, well, well dad or mom or grandma or grandpa, they've just always been that godly. And me saying that, you're immediately going like, yeah, that's not the whole story. You've been saved. You've been transformed by, by Christ and through the work of his spirit. So as we share those testimonies of salvation and transformation with our own children and grandchildren, we're helping them have a, have a grander story that they're part of as well. See, as, as God's people, we, we inhabit, we live within this larger meta-narrative, this larger story of all of God's people. And that includes from, from past saints into to modern-day ones as well. 
So as we teach people about how God has saved us, we're giving them examples. We're reminding them of how they can stay faithful because God has always been faithful to save and to transform his people. But then the song gets into uh, how God has acted for his people. Verse 2 You'll see God's action. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations. That is, uh, and then them, the people, Israel, you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them, your people, you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did by their own uh, arm save them, but by your right hand, your arm, in the light of your face, for you delighted in them. Who's the primary actor there? God. You saved. You did this. You provided. Their bow and arm didn't save them, but you saved them. The way the book of Joshua begins, uh, God promised to Joshua, I'm going to give you every square inch of land that I've promised. I will give you. God is the one who saves and redeems his people. We see God's sovereignty and salvation, but in the Old Testament, we also see God's sovereignty and salvation in the New Testament as well. We read in Ephesians that we are dead in our sins, but we are made alive together, made alive in Christ. Ephesians 1 tells us that God chose us before the foundation of the world, that we were predestined for adoption as sons, that we read that we were saved by grace through faith. And this is not of ourselves, but it is the gift of God. We read in John that no one comes to the Father or unless the, the Son is drawing. No one comes to the Son unless the Father is drawing him. See, the doctrine of election and salvation is a reminder that it is God who saves. We do not save ourselves. Yes, we need to have faith. Yes, we need to believe. Yes, we need to repent. But it is God who is sovereignly working over that whole process. The great British pre preacher Charles Spurgeon writes of Psalm 44, he says, This passage may be viewed as a beautiful parable of the work of salvation. Men are not saved without prayer, repentance, etc., but none of these save a man. Salvation is altogether of the Lord. Canaan was not conquered without the armies of Israel, but equally true it is that it was not conquered by them. The Lord was the conqueror, and the people were but instruments in his hands. See, so many people wrongly believe that if God is sovereign in salvation, then my worship is forced. It's not genuine. But that's not what the psalmist says here at all. The psalmist comes to God in light of his sovereignty and their salvation. Look at verse 4. He says, you are my king, O God. He says, for not in, my, not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me, but you have saved us from our foes and have put shame to those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. That sounds a lot like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, doesn't it? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God so that no man may boast. See, if we could save ourselves, we could boast in ourselves. But if it is God who saves, then we boast in God. See, I've said before that salvation is not like you're drowning, and at the very last minute you reach out for that life preserver and you're held up just enough by your own activity. Salvation, the way the Bible describes it, is that we are already dead in our sins. We have already drowned at the bottom of that ocean. And salvation is God brings us up 
He breathes new life. He saves. He resurrects. He makes alive what was dead. So when we boast, we don't boast in ourselves. We boast in the one who saves. So in the midst of your unexplainable suffering, you go to a sovereign God who has saved you, who has redeemed you, who has called you. You go to a sovereign God in salvation. The psalmist comes in light of that relationship, not apart from it. He doesn't accuse God. He recognizes what God has done in his life. So when you cry out, cry out to a God who is sovereign in your salvation. But that sovereignty does not end at salvation. Sovereignty moves on to distress and suffering. The psalmist cries out to a sovereign God in salvation, but he also cries out in view of God's sovereignty in distress. Cry out in view of God's sovereignty in distress. In verse 9, we begin to see God's hand and their difficulty. Hear this and, and hear how often or how God is described in this. Verse 9, the psalmist writes, But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us a taunt to our neighbors, the derision and scorn of of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations. You have God. See, the psalmist is not afraid to sing of God's sovereignty, of his hand in their salvation. And he's also not afraid to sing of God's sovereignty in their suffering. He's made them like sheep for slaughter. He's made them a laughing stock. We read of uh, his face not shining on them anymore, as we're familiar with as part of God's blessing. They're not, sh- they're not blessed among the nations. They're shamed among the nations. See, when we read a text like this, we struggle. Because we, we can't deny that God has been, is active in their suffering. And we sometimes try to pacify or... or uh, Uh, some of this language. We try to to take, you know, let God off the hook, so to speak. We try, we'll use words that are good words, like God allowed or God permits. And those aren't bad words, but even in those words, we cannot deny God's predetermined plan to permit suffering in his people. We must speak like Job. Job 1 the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We cannot understand God's plan, permission, and our suffering. Yet it is God's sovereignty in their suffering that propels the psalmist to go to the Lord and cry out. Many people refuse to believe in God because of a, a really common and a very honest and a very difficult question that many of you might be asking. How could a good God allow human suffering? If you're not a Christian, you're here today, there's a decent chance you're asking that question. If you're a Christian here today, there's a decent chance you're wrestling still with that question. It's an important one. 
And there's no easy answers. But we need to recognize that it's a, it's a challenging question for any worldview. Any worldview. Every person on the planet needs the answer, why would a good God allow human suffering? But see, a Christian, why we, it's difficult to answer that question comprehensively. A Christian can say, I don't know all the reasons for my suffering. And I don't know all of why God would allow it. But I know that God is strong and powerful and sovereign in my suffering. I know that God might be glorified in my suffering. I know that the Bible says that God will use suffering for my good and for his glory. So I can trust God in my suffering. But if you're not a Christian, how do you answer that question? What's the purpose of suffering? See, if there is no God, there's no point of your suffering. If there is no God, there's no one who's sovereign over your suffering. So there's no one to cry out to when you suffer. If there is no God, all suffering is just random. We might have lots of questions of how could a good God allow suffering. But I'd rather bank on the sovereignty of a good God. Who has a greater plan in suffering than what I do. Than to believe that all suffering is just pure randomness with no point. The psalmist knows that. So he cries out to him because he knows that he'll be heard. I'm so proud of so many of you who have suffered difficult things, meaningful things, hard things. And you question why. You wished for different circumstances, and we're about to get there. We don't question God's sovereignty. And it's in his sovereignty that you go to him because you know that he'll hear. And yet we come to where we started. Why? We can deal with what what many prosperity gospel preachers would say of if bad things are happening in your life, well then obviously you've done something bad to deserve that and you just need to have better or more faith and God will bless you. That's rubbish. Because the psalmist comes and he says there's no real answer for this so we continue to try out we try out in view of unexplainable circumstances unexplainable circumstances after hearing of God's sovereignty in salvation and in suffering we almost expect the people to say we repent we're sorry forgive us but we don't hear that we hear an honest admission, admission of faithfulness in verse 17. The psalmist writes, and the people sing, All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. We have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals, covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. See, the psalmist says, as far as we can tell, we've not done anything to deserve this. We've not forsaken your covenant. And yet we're still in the shadow of death. You might be familiar with that phrase from Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the shadow of death, thou art with me. 
But did we ever think that God himself provided the shadow in the first place? The psalmist comes on behalf of God's power. He says, if, if we had turned away from you, if we had gone to idols, God, you know everything. You know the secrets of the heart. You would know if we did this. And yet there's no, nothing that they've done to deserve it. The psalmist knows of God's character, of God's power, and yet he, he doesn't accuse God of doing anything wrong or untrue. He knows his attributes. He prays in light of them. And yet he still can't understand his circumstances. Verse 22 is a very pointed statement. He says, yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. One commentator says that this verse shows the extreme and constant sufferings of God's people, even at a time when they had not displeased him by any recent or visible def defection. They are sheep to be slaughtered. There's a farming analogy here. For anyone who's raised cattle or sheep or raised some kind of or pigs or raised chickens, you, know, you realize that there are some animals that you keep around to reproduce your herd, to sustain that, to, to, so that your, your, your herd will grow. And there are some animals that their sole purpose in life is to be fed, fattened, and slaughtered. Their sole purpose in life is not, to, is not to live a long life on the farm. Their sole purpose in life is to be meat in the freezer. And God's people of Israel recognized that they felt more like those animals in that pen than the one who would live by those still quiet waters that Psalm 23 talks about. Lord, we feel as if our whole existence is simply to live and die. You ever felt like that? Have you ever said, Lord, I don't understand this? There's really no good reason. I feel as if you're almost just picking on me. Think about the, the millions of Christian martyrs through the century who have died for their faith. For no apparent reason. They didn't do anything necessarily to deserve it. They were simply faithful Christians. Think about the challenging aspects of your circumstances in which you ask the Lord, is there anything that I did to deserve this in which there, there really is no reason? There's no clear evidence. And yet you suffer. You feel as if you're simply a sheep to be slaughtered. So in the middle of those seasons, we simply cry out. We don't try to answer. We simply cry out. In those situations, in those personal struggles, it might lead us to doubt God's love. It might lead us to wonder if he cares. But what's noteworthy about this psalm is that the psalmist doesn't do that. He cries out in view of God's sovereignty in his salvation and in his suffering. He cries out in the middle of his unexplainable circumstances. And he cries out in view of God's steadfast love. We cry out in view of God's steadfast love. The psalm does not end with a complaint, but a bold request. 
The psalmist asks for a a change of his circumstances and he, he comes to God in light of his love. In verse 23, read, Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. The psalmist does not pray with arms stretched out, head to heaven. The psalmist prays, clinging to himself on the ground. Some of you know what it's like to hear devastating news and to have a physical reaction. You may have thrown up, you may have passed out. You can't do anything, but you can't get out of bed. All you can do is is curl up. And the psalmist prays from from that view, and he, he asks, he requests, God, change our circumstances. Why have you forgotten us? Are you sleeping? The psalmist speaks very directly to God, not disrespectfully, honestly. When he says that, he's not denying God's power and salvation, and he already he already has confessed all those things. He says, Lord, we know that you love us. Now change our circumstances. This passage is full of tension, isn't it? How could a loving God allow his people to go through difficult things? How do we explain unexplainable sufferings? The psalmist, according to one commentator, neither consoles himself with complicated theological explanations nor resorts to sinful anger. He responds to his pain by fleeing to the Father because he knows God's love. See, we need to understand this psalm in light of the gospel. We need to understand this psalm in light of Jesus. God's people have seen this psalm, that we are like sheep to be slaughtered as an identity marker for themselves ever since this time. Paul quotes that passage in Romans chapter 8. You might be familiar with it. It's right after Paul says, for those whom he knew, he predestined. God had predestined them to be conformed to his image. He he talks about their justification, their election, their their glorification, their security and salvation with, with God because that he has saved them by his own sovereign power. And yet the early Christians were persecuted by everybody. Those who came out of a Jewish background, their, their Jewish brothers wouldn't persecute them to, to, to hold back the name of Christ. Those who were converted out of a pagan background among the nations were persecuted because they wanted to hold back the name of Christ. So the early Christians would have felt as if they were sheep to be slaughtered. How could a good God allow his people to go through unexplainable sufferings? And that question is asked here. In Romans 8, verse 31 We hear, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who who has died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Now we get to this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation 
or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. And up to that point, the early Christians are all saying, yep, I see all that. Yep, those are my circumstances. Yeah, I've been thrown in that prison. Yeah, I feel that pain. I've, I've been forsaken by my family. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. They've identified themselves with God's people in Psalm 44. They feel that persecution that's unexplainable. They have been faithful to the covenant and, they've not, and, and yet they're still not blessed by God. Can any of those things, can any of those circumstances separate us from God's steadfast love? Paul says, no. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, brothers and sisters, as God's people, you may feel like sheep to be slaughtered. You may feel as if your difficult circumstances have separated you from God's love, that he is not listening, that he is sleeping, that he is not paying attention. You may feel as if your persecution is, is an indicator of God's displeasure. You may feel as if your depression is an indication that you don't have enough faith. You may feel as if your diagnosis is somehow God's judgment on you. But nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The psalmist makes all those requests known and says, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. We said earlier, this could be a prayer of Job. This could also be a prayer of Jesus. Jesus was the one who knew his people's story. He had heard about the Exodus. He had planned it. He saw how God had saved Noah. He had saw how God had, had led his people out of Egypt through Moses. He had watched the story of David and Goliath. He had empowered all that. He knew the stories of, of God's salvation, of God's sovereignty in, in their distress. And on the cross, Jesus could say, what have I done to deserve this? But in the greatest act of love in human history, it was Christ on the cross in the midst of his distress that bought back our redemption. That is the reason that we can go to God in the midst of our distress because we have been redeemed. We have, through faith and repentance, are now reconciled to God. And because of what Christ has endured for us in the greatest sense, the one who had no sin, but became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So when we cry out in view of God's steadfast love, we cry out in view of the cross. We cry out in view of the cross. You may feel as if your circumstances have no explanation, and there may not be. Sometimes it's foolish to go searching for an answer that only belongs in the mind of the Lord. Jesus' disciples did this in John 9. 
there was a man born blind. The disciples looked at Jesus and they said, whose sin caused this, his sin or his parents? Jesus said, no one's sin. He's blind so that the works of God might be displayed in his life. Brothers and sisters, you might be now, have been, or will be in unexplainable difficulty and suffering. And you can cry out to a God who hears you, who is sovereign over your situation, who knows you, who's able to handle your most challenging request. But you cry out to a God who loves you and has given his son in the gospel. So we try out in view of the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's in view of that cross, so we come before you now. Knowing that because of the cross, you have demonstrated your love for us. So that when we hurt, when we feel pain, when our circumstances are unexplainable, we look to a God who suffered for us. We look to a God who is a man of sorrows. We look to the one who is acquainted with grief. We look to the one who has demonstrated his love for us and he gave his own son. Lord, I pray in the midst of our lament, in the midst of our challenge, that we would grieve, that we would wrestle, that we would cry. That we would cry to the one who is sovereign and good. In Jesus' name, amen.